Welcome to Renegade Inc. Before COP26, Prince Charles revealed his eco-credentials, stating that his Aston Martin is fine because it runs on cheese and wine. Surely a climate Marie Antoinette moment. Suspiciously absent from the COP26 talking shop was the word degrowth. But unless you're actively talking about degrowth, you're just peddling corporate, political and billionaire propaganda. Jason Hickel, welcome to Coconomics. Degrowth. When Roman Kuznarek was here, he said something to us um, that we should say to you. Quite why I wouldn't say it directly, but here goes. Please. He said, when you speak to Jason about degrowth, can you please stop, uh, get him to stop using the word degrowth? Mm. Now, I'm sure you've heard this argument lots Several of times. times. And Noam Chomsky's also said it, hasn't he? Uh, uh, um, and as has uh, Naomi Klein. Uh, what does that word do to people? It sort of has a Pavlovian effect. People go, what? Degrowth? Yes, that's I, right. I, hang on. That means, because all we hear all the time and what you're fighting is um, growth, 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 quarter mm. on quarter growth. Mm. And you come along and suddenly say, degrowth, this is the way forward, less is more. Why does that word have such a connotation? It's interesting. Um, I like Roman, although uh, you're right. He should have said this to, to me personally, but it's fine. Now, <laughs> I'm sorry here to hijack you with it. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, look, I didn't invent the term. Uh, it, it, has, it has a deep grounding in social movements, actually. And so we should acknowledge that. Yeah. Um, and uh, and it has a very, it's very clearly defined in the academic literature, which is simply that it's a, a planned reduction of resource and energy throughput in high-income nations conducted in a safe, just, and equitable way that improves social outcomes. And so it's, it's distinct from, say, a recession. We have different words because they're different things. Now, it's also intended to be a challenging word in the sense that um, it goes to the very core of our deepest assumptions about how the economy should work, right. namely uh, growth, and forces us uh, into a reckoning, right? And um, you know this creates antagonism, but it also creates difficult conversations that need to be had. Right. Uh, and we learn through that process, right? We, we, we learn through being challenged. Um, you know, that being said, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I definitely don't advocate that the term should always be used in every context. I think that people can make their own decisions about when to use the term. Um, you know, uh, a politician at the podium might choose to not use the term intersectionality because it's not known by most people and may be confusing. Similarly, they might choose not to use the term degrowth um, and take a different kind of framing like George Mambio's public luxury or donut economics or something like that. Although we would want to insist, insist that there's also a reckoning with the growth dependency mm. with whatever path you take. Um, the crucial thing is that the policies are enacted and those policies are policies to scale down destructive parts of the economy um, while at the same time uh, ensuring robust high quality public provisioning for all. Uh, so taking key social goods um, out of the market effectively. Uh, that, that, now, that does not mean that you, you close down the market entirely. Right. There are plenty of, I mean, commodity production can and should continue. There, there are plenty of realms of provisioning that should be provided by the market uh, in a non-capitalist way. Capitalism without, I mean, markets without capitalism. Uh, but we want to reverse that core um, feature of, of capitalism, which is to, uh, to de-enclose the commons and ensure that everyone has access to the means of survival. When people hear the word capitalism, they often think, uh, oh, that's just markets and trade and businesses and so on, right. which is not true, given that markets and trade uh, were around for thousands of years before capitalism. Capitalism is a new system, only 500 years old, 
And what uh, distinguishes it from all other economic systems in history is that it is, uh, um, it's organized around the enclosure of the means of survival, right? Be that originally through the enclosure movement, the, you know, the land, but also now, you know, energy, water, healthcare, education, transportation, et cetera, et cetera. There's, per, there's perpetual enclosure of what we need to survive. There, under, therefore, under produce, the banner of privatization. That's right. Privatization is the is the form that enclosure takes in the in the modern economy. And what happens with the uh, word privatization? It comes with a, a little friend, which is called Tina. Uh, that's right. It's because there is no alternative, and these things both arrive at the same time mysteriously. Yeah, and so the consequence of this basically is that people don't have any way of surviving except for selling themselves uh, to be exploited by capital in return for wages. So. Um, so human existence, the human enterprise itself, is subordinated to the interests of capital. And therefore, we end up with a system that, you know, where production is organized not around meeting human needs. Um, in fact, human needs are, are quite often sabotaged. Uh, um, the, the object in capitalism is to facilitate capital accumulation uh, and elite appropriation of labor and resources. So that's, um, so that's what we, we need to reverse. And, and we reverse that with the social guarantee that effectively de-encloses the commons. Uh, this is not, again, you know, as you say, this is not a, a vision of austerity. In fact, let's recognize that austerity is a child of capitalism. Yes. Austerity is a child of growthism, right? Uh, when you have a growth-addicted capitalist economy that must perpetuate capital accumulation, then you have to sabotage and privatize and enclose, which is the misery that is induced in the U.S. and Britain and Western Europe increasingly today. Um, so degrowth calls for the opposite. It calls for a kind of radical abundance um, where we all have access to what's necessary for a flourishing life. And that is based on a natural law principle, isn't it? Insofar as there is abundance out there, the, the, the nature provides. Once you start to enclose the commons, once you start to privatise, once you start to enact land monopoly, once you start to extract the rents, ultimately you end up with the situation that we've got now, which is apparent progress, but on the flip side, all this poverty all the environmental degradation, and of course, the mass inequality, inequity, you could go as far yeah. as saying, that comes with it. Yeah, well, yeah, and, we, and when it comes to the question of progress, we should be clear about where progress actually comes from, right? There's this strange narrative out there that says that um, social progress, improvements in social outcomes, uh, are sort of the spontaneous um, gift of, of capital accumulation, right? right. Um, as though it's kind of handed down to us by capital somehow. But no, this is not true. If you look historically, progress has always been um, one, through progressive social movements, anti-colonial struggles, you know, uh, labor unions, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the empirical record is very clear that, that these are the drivers of progress. Yes. Uh, quite often against the interests of, of the capitalist class who don't want to give those concessions. Right. right? Um, so, uh, so yes, I mean, we can have social progress without capitalism. In fact, it's easier to have social progress without capitalism because right. you're not fighting a, constantly, a, a constant uphill battle. Yes. Right? You don't have to constantly fight uh, capital at every, you know, through the media, through the political system at every turn. Uh, so that's, I think, crucial to this vision. Um, not fighting, ultimately there will be a fight, but picking your battles and, and fighting strategically, because let's face it, you know, whether it's the capture of the political system, uh, capture of the media, capture of the think tanks, uh, capitalists have been excellent, well-organized, and they often agree on an awful lot. Yes. Uh, and you can't say that about the left. Uh, if we're going to take that example. Um, how do you strategically pick those battles? How do you appeal to hearts and minds? And how do you get that constituency behind you who've understood your argument and realized that if we don't change course now, this super tank is going to crash? Yeah. So um, 
Yes, you're absolutely right. This requires a struggle. Let's not. Let's not. <laughs> Excuse me, because we can't we can't shy away from it. You know, if yeah, we're Anglosian yeah, about it and say, well, you know what, we, they're all going to wake up one morning and just see our logic. That's right. Then, that's right, yes. well, good luck. Well, for example, take you know, take degrowth for example, right? Um, I mean, uh, it's it is so well researched in the academic literature. Yeah. Um, you know, thousands of scientists have been at work for several decades. You know, demonstrating the imperative. Of um, of this, uh, and so the the logic is there. It's not like we lack evidence, you know. Right. Um, and the so, logic's there. Now the strategic battle. That's right. And so you know, you're absolutely right. It's not like um, the, you know uh, the powers of be are going to just agree to this voluntarily because they have very significant uh, material interests at stake. Let's put it that way. Um, and so you have to have a strategy. That was very diplomatically put. <laughs> <laughs> and right now, there's no strategy. Um, uh, the best we have is the environmentalist movements, which I support, and they do an excellent job to the extent that they're able. But they're but they're 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 limited in several respects. First of all, they do not have they tend not to have a sufficient a sufficiently robust critique of the fact that it is capitalist growth that is ultimately driving this problem. Right? right. They think of it in terms of individual consumption and behavior change, et cetera, et cetera, which is not going to fly. Right. Uh, we have to understand this is ultimately the the, the crisis we face is being driven by uh, the production system, which is organized around perpetual expansion. Overconsumption in the West, um, in rich countries, is an effect of, of the production system. Uh, over, you know, capitalism is constantly overproducing and then has to find a way to absorb uh, all of that overproduction to maintain uh, value, basically. So I think we have to recognize here that um, growth is a deeply ideological term. Right. I mean, you know, think about it. If you were a capitalist, maybe you are secretly. Um, and if <laughs> That's you my side to, hustle, by the way. <laughs> yeah, if you wanted to sell your system to, to the people, then you would sell it on the grounds of it's going to generate growth. Yes. Growth is a phenomenally positive, powerful term. Children grow, plants grow, everything good grows, it would seem, obviously to a limit. We don't talk about that part. Um, uh, so it's like, as Timothy Mitchell uh, has put it, it is the alibi of capital, right? So if capitalism you know, entails processes of exploitation and, uh, and um, extraction, which we might actually not agree with, uh, it can sort of get us to buy into the, bro the broader project by saying, oh no, it's giving us growth and growth is equivalent to progress, which is of course not true. So, and what's interesting is, you know, they talk about expanding the pie. What pie is being expanded here? Right. The, the, the pie that's being expanded is the pie of commodity production not the pie of use value or provisioning. So what really matters to us is, is access to the resources we need to live well, which, um, which, which may entail, for example, a, a public health service. Now, if you were to privatize the US uh, health service, oh, sorry, if you were to nationalize- It's already done. It's already done. It's already done. If you were to nationalize the US health service, um, uh, taking that uh, public good out of the market, yes. GDP would decline. Yes. And yet our access to this crucial use value that is essential to all of our lives would improve. Our health outcomes would improve. Our sense of well-being and happiness would improve. Uh, and so there's, you know, there's, there's quite often a disjuncture between GDP growth and provisioning and well-being. Uh, and that should be an empowering realization for us. You know, we, can, we can improve provisioning and use value uh, without additional growth. What's the problem with GDP as a metric? Because now, uh, and I'm sure this wasn't the case 30, 40 years ago. Now, whenever we hear that, we think, actually, it, we don't need more growth. This GDP thing, it's sending us down the wrong track. Yeah. What's the problem with it? Well, the problem with GDP is that, first of all, we should be clear what it is. It's, um, 
Uh, it's not a measure of use value or provisioning or well-being, which is the way it's often used as a proxy, basically. Um, it is a metric of commodity production as measured in terms of prices. Um, and it, it does not count the social or ecological costs of commodity production. So if you tear down a forest and sell the timber to Ikea, then GDP goes up, but it doesn't account for the ecological costs of that. This is not to say that commodity production is not useful, and in some cases maybe may even need to grow. Um, but we should be rational and say, as, as, um, as uh, Cousinets himself warns, like let's always ask growth uh, for what end and for what purpose and, and for whose benefit. You know? Now, he, he devised the system, didn't he? He's the one that devised GDP in the 1930s. That's and right. then spent the rest of his career uh, saying, oh no, I've created a monster. <laughs> yeah, he spent the rest of his career, career warning about it, basically, saying... <laughs> what have I done? Um, we should always be asking, uh, look, um, uh, what is being produced? Who has access to it? And how is the income from that being distributed? These are the questions we need to be asking. Uh, and so let's focus on producing things that we actually need. Let's make sure that people who need them have access to them rather than enclosing and privatizing them. And let's ensure that the income generated from commodity production is shared, is shared fairly. Jason Nickel, welcome back to Renegading. Um, always great to have you. Uh, Less is More is our book of the week this week. We want you to pitch it to us. Less is More, how degrowth will save the world. That's the tagline. Go. So, <laughs> thanks, Ross. So what, I, what I'm trying to do in this book is to, is to situate the arguments for a post-growth and degrowth economy um, in the context of the broader history of capitalism uh, and, and really unites uh, consciousness about the environmental crisis with consciousness about um, how our capitalist system works. Uh, so, and in the end, I offer uh, sort of a pathway with solutions toward a, a kind of post-capitalist economy. Um, and uh, I, also, I also consider um, questions of ontology, like a, a, the deeper philosophical questions that underpin our relationship with, with nature and how capitalism has affected that and where that came from uh, in the history of capitalism. So that's it. And um, I would... Happy ending? Tragic ending. <laughs> um, I, tried to, I tried to make it hopeful, but let me put it this way. Go. Um, uh, hope is important. So people always want to ask me, like, do we have hope? And we do have hope, and hope sustains us. But I also want to say that our hope can only ever be as strong as our struggle. Uh, we can't be naive about what is required of us in the face of ecological breakdown and uh, accelerating capitalist crisis. Um, so we, we, we need a movement that's commensurate to the task, and that's not easy to build. Books change authors. What did you uh, think about, or what uh, assumptions did you hold at the beginning of writing uh, Less is More? And what changed your mind, or what did, you, what did you change, transition through the book when you finished writing it, if I can put it like that? Oh, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I think that, uh, that I've learned a lot from my critics, actually. <laughs> and so I, I'm on social media, which is... Which That's is, a terrible which idea. Which is terrible. Yeah, <laughs> a it terrible is, idea. It is terrible. But what has been useful for me is that um, it's, it's given me a chance to, 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 to field all of the best arguments of those who are skeptical yes. of this position. Give us the three, the top three that you hear 
with monotonous regularity. <laughs> um, uh, give us the top three about degrowth. Well, there are several. So, um, so first of all, people will say, oh, that sounds like you're, gonna, you're preventing poor countries from growing. Right. Uh, and this is definitely not true. Degrowth is very explicit that this is uh, um, a demand for reducing resource use and energy use in rich countries. In fact, what's important to note here um, is that is that growthism in rich countries yes. rely, relies on forms of imperialist appropriation from the global south. Which right. we, Explain that, because people will hear that and go, yeah, but what, what? So historically, we all know that the Industrial Revolution in, Europe, in Western Europe um, and Europe's, Europe's you know, economic rise uh, depended fundamentally on appropriation of resources and labor from the global south. Think of uh, several hundred years of mass enslavements um, think of where the cotton and sugar that fueled the Industrial Revolution came from, not from England, let's put it that way. Um, it, it, you can't argue it. It, it emerged from the colonial, right. from the colonial process. Yes. Colonialism and capitalism have always been united together. Yes. Their, their histories are coterminous. Um, now, political decolonization was accomplished in most of the world in the middle of the 20th century, but uh, scholars argue that these basic relations of appropriation continue to operate in the world economy right. uh, through for various forms of unequal exchange whereby we can trace empirically a net flow of resources and embodied labor in, in traded goods from south to north. Right. Um, a large net flow. Right. Uh, we're talking about a significant portion of global south productive activity is organized around capital accumulation in the global north. Right? Right. And so um, growth has this imperial dimension to it. Growth in the north has this imperial dimension to it, which causes immense uh, um, ecological and social harm in the global south, undermining uh, struggles for, um, for uh, improvements in social outcome and development, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. And so if we are going to be anti-imperialists, we have to start questioning um, growthism in the global north. And I would say that, uh, that progressives must be anti-imperialism, otherwise our progressivism is worth nothing. Two, what's the second argument that you hear uh, to try and uh, defeat degrowth? So another one people will say is, that, well, that sounds like austerity or voluntary impoverishment, et cetera. So, uh, so no, I mean, uh, this assumption that degrowth somehow will lead to like regression in social improvement it, um, is premised on the assumption that growth and social improvement are linked, which we know for a fact they are not. There's, there's no reason that an expansion in commodity production should have any causal relationship with social outcomes, certainly not beyond a certain point. Mm. And, we, and we know for a fact that you can, we can achieve very high levels of social well-being with moderate levels of GDP. Done. Good. Recognize. <laughs> Second one, recognize. Third one. The third one is that um, people will say, well, OK, maybe we do need degrowth, um, a planned reduction of resource and energy use, uh, but it's not politically feasible. Uh. Now, um, sorry, and I, <laughs> oh, the helplessness, and it, you can hear it. Yeah. Oh, wow. And look, I agree. I, I agree that um, the politics of this are hard. Mm. Um, there are there. Are, but, but this is not about the masses, you know, resisting it. Once we get past the ideology of growth, that is not a problem. Once people recognize that what we're proposing here in an eco-social economy is um, uh, will, will actively improve the lives of most people. Uh, certainly the working class by ensuring, you know, better wages, um, better real purchasing, uh, real welfare purchasing power of wages, universal basic services, a shorter working week, um, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, life will be better yeah. uh, in every respect, but there will be less commodity production and consumption uh, and less elite accumulation. And so who are we really fighting here? Who is, the, who is, who is really the political obstacle? 
it is, it's, a it's the, the elite class that stands to lose so much from this critique. Uh, and so, and, and that's a, an obstacle we have to take seriously. And we need the political movements that are commensurate to that task. And for that, we need more than just the environmentalist movements. We need environmentalists uh, in alliance with working class formations, and importantly, in alliance with Global South social movements who've been demanding this for a very long time. Big tech has a big problem. Manufacturers are used to just selling us products every couple of years and they come with a business model which relies on selling more and more tech and creating more and more waste. This is simply unsustainable. It's always been unsustainable, but at this point in the middle of a climate crisis, it's just completely unsustainable and needs to stop. We are concerned that regulators are acting too late and too slowly, and this is why we came up with a 10-year phone campaign to ask for a real step change in the way regulators are treating these issues. The 10-year phone campaign is one of the initiatives of the European Right to Repair campaign. We are asking the European Union to commit to ambitious regulations when it comes to smartphones and other products. What does that mean? We need devices to last for much longer than they do at the moment. So why is it that manufacturers stop supporting software in the smartphones in our pockets after two or three years? What about 10 years? What about spare parts? Shouldn't they be available to everyone and not just to authorized repairers for 10 years again? And shouldn't they be a lot more affordable so that devices can last longer? And when people stop using them, someone else can continue using them safely, securely for much longer period of time. E-waste is one of the fastest growing stream of waste across the world, and it keeps growing at three to five percent per year. Most people are not aware that the vast majority of the environmental impact of a product happens before we've ever switched it on. Up to 80 percent of the greenhouse emissions related to our smartphones are produced during the manufacturing. So to slow our impact on the planet, we need to significantly slow our speed of consumption. And the only way to do this is to use the products that we have for much longer. And that's why they need to be more repairable and supported for much longer by manufacturers. Right now, the existing plan, such as it is, is, um, is to grow uh, is to grow the entire economy, all sectors of the economy, right. all the time, regardless of whether or not we actually need them right. indefinitely. Right. right. This is people, people will look back on us as a, as a race and think, "What were they?" <laughs> it's too much. It's irrational, especially in an era of ecological breakdown. So, um, so we need to be more rational. And what does that look like? It, it looks like um, let's think about what we actually want to improve. Right. Okay. Uh, let's think about you know if we need better public health care, better um, you know public transportation. Uh, you know, Education. whatever it might be, Education. renewable energy, education, you know, wind power, et cetera. Um, clearly, we need to expand these sectors, improve uh, that, that kind of provisioning. Um, but obviously, there are also clearly sectors that are destructive and socially unnecessary or less necessary and need to be actively scaled down. SUV production, private jet production, the commercial airline industry more broadly, industrial beef, uh, fast fashion, 
advertising, planned obsolescence, the military industrial complex. There are clearly huge chunks of our economy. That's quite a list. That are organized around um, elite power, uh, elite accumulation, and, uh, and the interests of capital, not around human needs. So we should be able to distinguish, please, this should not be so difficult. You know, my hope is that this, this call sort of enlivens uh, the left um, to, to recognize its, uh, the, the role that it can play in the 21st century, uh, building a society that is more uh, just, but also more ecological. And the justice side and the ecology side come hand in hand. There's no ecology without justice, and there is no justice without ecology. Right. Uh, so we must be clear on that, and that is, uh, I think, the direction for, for progressive movements in the 21st century. If the left did that now, what does Europe look like in 10 or 15 years? So what does a post-capitalist society look like? It's, I didn't say it that way. <laughs> um, so it's a society where um, we have high-quality, universal public services, not just healthcare and education, which are the standard ones, but uh, you know, public transits, energy, water, um, internets, housing. Um, the things that people need to live flourishing lives are available to everyone. We have a shorter working week so that we're, um, uh, because we need to produce less in the economy, right? Like, Think about it. If we're scaling down sections of the economy that we don't actually need, our economy needs less labor. We should consider this to be liberatory, right? Why be worried about that? Because there's been a drip drip of right-wing propaganda for an awfully yes. long time yes. to say that is the road to serfdom. So, sh so shorten the working week, yeah. uh, distribute necessary labor more evenly, introduce a public job guarantee so that everybody who, who wants to work has access to the training necessary to contribute to the most important collective projects of our generation. Um, renewable energy, yes. uh, housing refits, ecological regeneration, regenerative farming, whatever it might be, the things that we know we need to accomplish this decade, uh, that requires a tremendous amount of labor. Um, let us direct our labor uh, um, towards that rather than towards producing trinkets that uh, are designed ultimately to, uh, to enhance the, the accumulation of the capitalist class. <laughs> right. so, so, so it looks like that. It looks like more free time, more meaningful work, uh, less insecurity of unemployment, um, less poverty, less misery, less homelessness. In fact, those are eradicated. Um, it's a society, however, that is also significantly less unequal um, because you've, you've uh, um, gotten rid of the engines of capital accumulation at this point, right? Um, uh, through uh, this process of de-enclosure, as I call it. Um, and so uh, you have a lot less inequality um, and a lot less, ultimately, um, unnecessary commodity production. Okay, so it, it's a it's a slim it slims down in terms of our resource and energy use, and yet we live better lives. We've delinked our well-being and our welfare from the imperative of perpetual expansion under capitalism. Um, we have a more rational approach to our social objectives. Uh, what do we want to improve? Those uh, that's what our policy is targeted towards. What do we want to reduce in terms of ecology? Uh, ecological impact. Those are our policy objectives, not this abstract GDP growth. And so our politics are more, are, are more, are more focused, our system is more efficient, our technology is liberated from, uh, from the constraints of capitalist growthism. Uh, that's the vision that we fight for. And that's the vision uh, and the demarcation, if you like, that you've made in the book. Um, congratulations on the book, Less is More. Thanks. Uh, it, I mean, and insofar as your timing, not bad, uh, because there's an urgency now, right? Mm. Um, because, and we have to act. Jason, thanks for your time. My pleasure.